Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legfold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is Brigadier General Dan Gabrielli. He's currently the Chief of Staff for the Minnesota Air National Guard and was, up until about a year ago, our Wing Commander, which means he was responsible for the mission and all 1,200 people of our organization. He's also a St. Paul, Minnesota native, went to Mankato State for political science a few years ago, a few years ago, and he's also a pilot for one of the big airlines. Welcome, General Gabrielli. Well, thank you, Chief. Thanks for inviting me in. This is uh, both um, exciting, it's an honor, and it's a little intimidating with you hosting. I just don't know what to expect, but it's, I'm, it's the I'm haircut, kind of excited, right? yeah. The great unknown. Okay. Well, we're going we're gonna to get into it and learn a little bit about you and have a little fun along the way, like I said. So, um, Chief of Staff for the Minnesota Air National Guard, what is it exactly you do here? I've been asking myself that every day, Chief. <laughs> no, uh, this job is unique in that it is not, uh, for people who know the term, a G-series position. I, am, I have no command authority. I oversee the two airlift wings and the Joint Force Headquarters staff. My job is to facilitate and support. The wing commanders and their subordinate commanders are, and, and people have probably heard me say this, they are the commanders of the people in the wing, the G-Series commanders. And I am there to say, what do you need from me? How can I support? Okay, so maybe some mentorship and guidance if asked but I'm very much about autonomous leadership, and I'm there to support. So if I can facilitate anything using my rank, I'm there for them. Was it hard to step away from being a wing commander where you had all these people that you cared about um, and then move into the more of a advisory and supportive role? And what was hard about that, if it was? I would say there's two aspects that, were, that I think were difficult about that. First of all, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the position. I love being able to do this uh, for the wings and stay involved. Like I said, hey, if I'm still in, I'm happy. You're going to have to drag me kicking and screaming out of the Minnesota Air National Guard, and they probably will. And uh, But, yes, it's a, it's a big change for two reasons. What you said is that when you're a wing commander, you know, it's 24-7. It's, it's working hard like everybody in this wing. I'm not working any harder than anybody in this wing was working, but... You had this this satisfaction that somehow you were having an effect and an impact, not only on people, which is the most important thing that you felt you had, but the people that drive the mission and the mission itself. Um, and being able to affect that using uh, all your leadership and the airmen in your decision-making process. And I really enjoyed that aspect. To step away from that where you don't have any sort of a role in decision-making, but you can guide. Um, based on your experience, because that's all you really have in the end. You, you might have some natural intelligence. I hear some people have that, but uh, a lot of it rests on experience, and people can learn from your experience, then they don't have to make the same mistakes. We all learn from mistakes, but if you can learn from somebody else's mistakes or things they've been through, uh, that's all the better, and that's what mentorship is from people who've had experience. The second part that I miss is more the full immersion in day-to-day. -day. As you know, I'm in a traditional role now, and that was like, you know, it felt like going from 100 miles an hour 
down to 25 miles an hour. Traditional you know? guard meaning you're one weekend a month, like what people yeah. consider that yes. the guard and, service is like, right? Right, and you get, you know, your your drill periods, your, your um, you know, you might have some meetings and conferences, TDYs, and you get, I think, 60 days as a general officer down there. So there is a substantial amount of days you can do, but like I said, going from 100 miles an hour as a wing commander to I'm still busy with my life as an airline pilot and a general officer, I'll tell you right now that being uh, in the Air National Guard is much more fulfilling than the civilian career. I love the civilian career, but it's more of a, I get to see the world and meet cool people, but you have that feeling it's not as selfless as, as the guard is, and there's nothing that can replace that. So from going from a full-time position uh, to that has been a challenge. And as everybody may remember, the last year I was a wing commander, I was working for the airlines and doing the wing commander job, but I was still engaged and that got that fulfillment. So this is just a little bit of a different change of pace, detaching more from that full immersion. Into so I'm going to ask you the, the the dumb hard question, and yeah. that is: Is it good to be a general? <laughs> it's good to be a general, not because you're a general, but it's good to have. I guess how would you say a little more leverage with uh, to help? It's just a tool. I said that the star is just a tool. It's just something there to help you help others. Do you think you are making the, and this is this is another one of those good, dumb questions, but do you feel like you're making the maximum impact after you've been kind of in the seat there for a year? Or do you have, do you have a, a longer way to go in your own eyes? Oh, to be able to make a better impact? Yeah. Um, Yes and no. I'm finding I'm finding my comfort level, and and people have probably heard me say this too. If you're not uncomfortable, you're probably not doing your job very hard. You should probably move to the next level, or you should quit. Um, so am I uncomfortable? Yeah, I don't. Sometimes I'm supporting the two wings and the joint uh, staff or the uh, JFHQ air staff. So to go back to your question, am I finding a comfort level? Yeah, I am. But you you almost feel like should I be doing more because you've been doing so much before you took that role, or Am I finding what the new normal is being a traditional and weighing in as I can? Always available via email and phone. But uh, but then knowing when there are full-timers down there that are handling a lot of these issues. Will I get better? I sure hope so. I'm always striving to get better. I can always, always, there's always room for improvement. Um, so I'm finding my way and uh, I'm trying to start to find uh, other things to be involved in. Um, the good question you asked though, so... A lot of what I, my touch points and contacts are from my old positions at the Air National Guard Readiness Center. And I've always said that there's a, a shelf life to those contacts because they move on. The positions are still there. But if you know the right push points for the positions, that's good. But I've still found that a lot of the people I worked for there have moved up. So now they have more influence. So if I still remember them from when I was there mm -hmm. working for them or with them now, they can affect more change if I if I still have that relationship with them. So those relationships really do matter. Oh man, they matter so much. So going back, because relationships are built out of time, and so is a career. Yeah. Um, your career in the Air Force didn't start with the Air National Guard. You were active duty first. I After was. a successful and I'm sure academically robust uh, period at Mankato State, I went there too, so. It's <laughs> Did I see a smirk on your face? Yes, it was a smirk. It was good. It was, a, it, was, okay. it was It was when it was Mankato State and not Minnesota State. Mankato. I understand. It was when it was cool. 
Back when now it was, it was cool. It's, now it's too elitist. For any alums yeah. or current students listening to this podcast who are yes. going to Mankato, don't worry. It's still yes. cool. I. It was a party school back then. Did you party a lot? Okay, so here's what I have to say about Mankato State. Is um, with my experience, I went there, and I'm gonna. Okay, here's how old I am. I went there from eighty two, eighty four, eighty six, eighty six, eighty six. Yes, because I took a year off. Good point. Good catch there. I was on the five year. Um, I took a year off and worked back in the cities after my freshman year, and then went back. But I will say, here's the thing about Mankato State. Um, I found that in the early '80s, either people put in two years there, then moved on to another college, or a lot of junior college people came there after two years. Or I felt there weren't as many full four-year people, and I do. I I think that I'm gonna self-confess. It was I didn't. I I don't consider myself a partier. I I went. I was unique, and I went to college with two guys that I went to grade school, kindergarten, high school, graduated with them, and we all. Three of us lived together all through so college. So the answer is so really yes. You partied a lot of Mankato. No, right? I, I think I I always engaged in the social life there, but even at that age, I was I was not uh, a person that could party for a very long time. It might be one night a weekend, and it was fun, and then I was sleeping and studying the rest of the weekend. Fair enough. Um, it, it does take work. I couldn't keep that. the pace with the people that were professional there. So, to put it that way. Um, but I would say that I, I did, I enjoyed the studies. And here's what I'll also say. And here, are, here we are, me and you, Chief, talking about Mankato, almost, almost a little tongue-in-cheek. But I'm going to tell anybody that goes to the state schools and uh, or if they go to private schools, this has been my experience. And I'm just going to throw this in here. My senior year, I went out to uh, London and I did an internship in the British Parliament, working for a member of parliament, went to the University of London for a couple of schools because I was that state school kid and I wanted to break out my senior year and do something exciting. And I still to this day say I was the token Midwestern guy that they had to take out there and you had to write an essay and get accepted. I still don't credit myself as much as they probably had to take a Midwestern kid. But I was out there with a lot of East Coast kids, a lot of Ivy League kids uh, working for these members of parliament. My point in all this is if you go to a state school, my experience with the knowledge level, the maturity, the intellectual level of the people out there, it doesn't matter what school you go to. You can read a book by Henry Kissinger or Warren Christopher, or you can have them teach you the class at Harvard and then talk to you in person. But you know what? The book is just as good as hearing them in person. So that's kind of been my take on all this. You're going to pay more money for an elite school. You're going to get the branding. But in the end, it's what you put into it. You may be have to hold yourself a little more responsible to uh, to get the studying done at Mankato State, whereas they're going to hold you to a higher standard maybe at Harvard or those kind of places, but you're going to get the exact same education out of it. You may just have to buckle down. So I know that's a long way around, but I wanted to, I know we were kind of tongue-in-cheeking the whole mm-hmm. Mankato State thing, but all I'm saying is I got a darn good education out of there because I put in, you know, what I got out of it. And, absolutely. Uh, so Absolutely. So putting in what you'd... So back take, to your original take, question. <laughs> I maybe had some beers once or twice a weekend, Fair but enough. I could not keep up with that crowd there. And I actually, at some point, decided I have got to get through this school and get done and get out of here and move on with my life. So you've, speaking of that, you finished your your career at Mankato State in '86. Yes. Um, healthy, sober, with a degree, and you left for active duty Air Force. I did. Why, I. Why did you choose that? Okay. So another thing. This is the old Dan who does. Sometimes he doesn't look farther than two feet in front of his face into what he wants in life. 
I always thought military airplanes were cool. It was cool to see military planes. And I thought, back in my mind, that'd be kind of neat, but I'm not one of those kids who want to fly since I could walk. So I, uh, I was very interested in, in law school. So when I got out, I, I just got a job. And poli sci was not the greatest major to have to just jump out. I think poli sci is a great major to and have. It's a great major to go to grad school or, sure. or whatever. But and then after the internship, I kind of explored like, working for some local Congress people. But I just I just wanted to move on a little bit. So anyway, got a job with a title insurance company as a courier, delivering mortgage packages to banks for two years. And then I became a mortgage closer. Then I just did title examinations and then the owner and myself became good friends. He encouraged me to go to law school, took the LSAT, enrolled at William Mitchell. At the same time, I applied for pilot training, got accepted by both, and decided, I don't think I want to go back to school right now. So I went to pilot training. As a 26-year-old, entering the Air Force, going to officer school. So and you went and flew C-5s? Uh, initially, out of pilot training, I flew T-37s sure. as an instructor pilot at Williams Air Force Base, then Vance Air, Sp Air Force Base, then C-5s for three years. So 10-year active duty. Career. Awesome. Went through Altus Air Force Base, which was my first duty station. Yeah. Because that's where everybody goes to learn how to fly C-5s. That's right. Awesome big plane. Does it does it fly like a, a T-37 little jet? or? They all fly the more? same. Yes. If you put the runway halfway up your windscreen and runway threshold, it's going to land the same. I went from the smallest airplane to the biggest airplane in the Air Force. Yeah, C five were fun. They could see the world. You could do a lot of stuff, but it was uh, it was a maintenance nightmare back then, and you broke a lot. And it became the running joke, but it could haul a lot of things, which mm -hmm. made it very efficient in that respect. But yeah, kind of a maintenance nightmare. Um, enjoyed the, enjoyed it though. Yeah, for many reasons. Fun fun plane. Um, awfully loud, especially when they were running that thing right outside of the fire station at two yes. o'clock in the morning. Not as fun as a C one thirty though. I believe you. What's the difference? Because a C one thirty is does so many more things. It's so tactical. So we stay busier here at our C-130 unit than C-135. I will C5 say that when I got out in 98, came to the guard, went to C-130 in school in 99, I just got back, and guess what happened? The Balkans, Kosovo. I went on my first deployment in my whole military career. You know, I flew T-37s, it was 9 to 5, taking mm -hmm. jet on the weekend. I used to fly up to Minnesota from Vance all the time, and Vance Air Space in Oklahoma, and land in St. Paul with another guy from Minnesota, and we'd go see our families. It was like a 9-to-5 flying instructor job. C-5s was like an airline. You didn't deploy because the asset couldn't stay off base for too long. You'd go back and forth on trips. I get in the the guard, you know, at that time. What, you know, what year did you join the guard again? 98. 98, okay. So 99, I get out of C-130 school, and boom, Kosovo's going on. We're going to Ramstein to live for a month and fly missions out of Albania and all sorts of places. And I came home, and I told my wife, I'm more... I feel more active duty now than I ever did in the active duty. Do you think duty. the guard is the same way now? Do, pe do people still have that same kind of mentality where we are just as relevant and just as busy as the active duty? Well, no. So, I mean, this was the cutting. This was just sort of the end of, I felt that way just because of the aircraft I flew in the active duty weren't really deployed aircraft. If I flew C-130s active duty, I probably would have felt that was, mm -hmm. I probably would have deployed a lot. But, um, but coming out in 98, we all know what happened in 2001. That's That was the watershed where we became strategic reserve to an operational reserve to an operational force. Mm -hmm. um, so not many people even know the guard that I knew I came in 98. Yeah, I had that deployment to Kosovo, but then it kind of slowed down and felt more like it was the guard uh, that people probably recognized at the time. And But then right from there, 9-11 happened and it was never the same. And uh, I will always say that, you know, people that came in, 
I so admired, and I've said that a million times, is the people that came in post 9-11 are owed so much respect. I'm not saying that people like me or other people wouldn't have come in under wartime circumstances. They came in in wartime circumstances knowing that the guard wasn't the same guard anymore. They were going to deploy. They were going to be activated quite a bit. They were going to have to sacrifice for employers, but they still did it. That's my... I'm so, and I'm, it's so incredible now that they've hit 20-year careers, some of those people that joined after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Isn't that we're, amazing? We're getting close. We're, we're losing them kids at the time. And, yeah. So, um, so, so respectful of those, those folks. And they never knew a different guard. They never knew. There's not too many of us remember the other guard. So the difference, um, it impacts more than just the person that's serving. And you mentioned you got here, you got into the guard, and you were talking to your wife about the difference between the two. Maintaining that balance between guard and work, flying for an airline, mm-hmm. and home and family, and you've you've maintained all of that stuff, and and that's a, an incredible load that everybody in our organization at one point in their career has to carry. Your wife had the perspective of you flying like an airline pilot for the active duty, and now boom, you're in this part of a, a completely different mission set. How did you do that? And well, what what were some of the what were some of the challenges, and what did you guys learn together as a family? Well, people have learned heard me say this before too. But when you're in the guard, you have certain disadvantages and certain advantages compared to activity. We happen to be a family where both our families were in the Twin Cities, so Anne was taken care of when I went on deployments. Active duty has that support network because everybody's from somewhere else. But especially if you live on a base housing. You're there to support because you've all have shared experiences. You know what's going on. You're supporting each other. Here are the great things we had our families around. But the interesting thing that was kind of foreign is the families didn't really understand as much as your military friends if you're active duty. But they were there for the support. So that from that aspect, we were very lucky. Some people might have come to this guard unit and moved here from another place where their families are not from. And mm-hmm. man, they would have had it tough. They didn't have the military community. And they didn't have the family community. Now, yes, there's a guard network of families, but we all know that's very hard to maintain in the guard when everybody's spread out. But I also will say you talk about, you know, maintain the airline job and the guard job. I've always thought that, you know, it used to be in the old days, if you were guardsmen, you had your quarter of a career in the guard of your time it takes up along with full-time career. After 9-11, that became a half to three quarters of a guard career and a full civilian career. So you're doing one and three quarters careers, I always said. I will say also that I have no reason to feel like I... Airline was different. Airline is so amenable, you know, to mill leave. I'm gone. Okay, fine. See you later. Thanks for your service. I really, really, really cannot even hold a candle to the traditionals that have worked for small companies, that own small companies, even work for corporations, especially after 9-11 when things got leaner, 2008 when things got leaner and now man I can't imagine the stresses those those uh that puts on those employers within your and position now how how can you support that what's the, what's the big organization downtown the state the national guard when it comes to this the sacrifice of our service members mm-hmm. what's being done to help that well like the esgrs you're it's for sure getting at? Yeah. yeah employer support of the yep. guard and reserve and they do a lot and they and a lot of them the leadership in those organizations are former military people, mm-hmm. um, like Tom, Tom Simonette and those folks who understand it, and they and these people do it basically in a volunteer sort of basis, and they yeah. interact and and uh, advocate with employers, and we do the 
ESGR flights out the wing and those are huge things. They that's that is more important than ever, and they understand all that. Um, but it's all economically driven, right? When times were tough, employers were getting lean. They could afford to less and less to let their guardsmen go. They have to let them go, but to to really, um, I guess, uh, not tolerate. It's not the term we're using for, but get by without those guardsmen, mm -hmm. you know, who are deployed or gone. I can't imagine being in a small business. You have to go to your boss each time. And go, I got to go away for three months. Yep. Me, it was an email to my chief pilot, and he's like, I don't care. Just tell the schedulers, you know. One of the things that I've noticed over the course of time, um, that when I came into the Air Force, you know, if you wanted a family, we would have issued you one yeah. at basic training. Yeah. And and we used to hear that, and that was regular. Or if we wanted you to have, have a family, we would have given you one at tech school. Um, now, uh, it seems like we have a much higher sense of empathy, like you've been saying, for, for our folks that are working hard and balancing a career in three quarters plus family, plus mm -hmm. kids, uh, and the messages that we're hearing from our higher headquarters is much more supportive than it has been in the past. What do you think has changed that? Do you think it's been the, the service since 9-11 and, and the busyness, or has it been a shift in how people have learned how to lead folks that struggle with, with the balance between the two? Both, but I think the second, your second part, the the latter is the more important piece is that we have bred different leaders and uh, I, I totally see that. I've seen that. I've seen that with the active duty leadership, the way they respect the guard. We've seen that since 9-11, the total force respect. You know, we had chief of staff of the Air Force who were sort of still, I don't want to say looked down on the guard, just looked at it as a different entity, but the last two or three have been incredible because the active duty is breeding leaders that respect the total force. Now you're talking about you're talking about a different topic with leadership that respects the families and thinks about the families. Because and I was just thinking this too, if every decision you ever make starts with the, the airman, if you can have a picture in your mind of an, an airman basic or a senior airman in any unit and you're constantly when you're making a big macro decision, stop and think of that airman's face or those airmen, it's usually gonna lead you sort of to a true north of what to do and how to think about how you're going to support people. Mm -hmm. if, that, if, that, if you always have that picture in mind that that's the end product of what you're doing, because it really is the end product of what you're doing. You know, the airmen are the mission. They're the ones that, they're the ones, they're the, they're the ones that carry the weapons. They're the ones that, that fly the weapons. They're the ones that take care of the weapons. They're the ones that support people who do that mission. And it's the human aspect. Um, is the most important. So if you're always thinking of the airmen, you're going to do the right thing. We're going to get back to General Gabrielli in just a second, but right now joining me in studio is Melissa Piazza. She's our retention manager. What do you do for that job? What I do in the retention office is administer the incentive programs, federal cash bonus, state cash bonus, GI Bill kicker, and for those of you who are eligible for post 9-11 GI Bill, I help uh, with the transfer of that to dependents. And if I was interested in staying in the Guard and was wondering if there was an incentive attached, how would I get a hold of you? Many, many ways. I am available email melissa.piazza at us.af.mil. That's melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, dot pizza with an extra A in the middle at us.af.mil or via text-friendly cell phone 
312-437-3514. That was 612-437-3514. Cool. And do all jobs get a bonus right now? What are some of the top ones that do? We have a lot of maintenance positions on the bonus list currently. The end of the fiscal year is quickly approaching. So on October 1st, I expect to hear uh, an edited list. So stay tuned. We've been talking with Brigadier General Dan Gabrielli uh, before we went on break. So thanks for sticking around with us in general. Thanks for uh, continuing our conversation. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So uh, second half of the podcast, after our little break, and um, you were talking before we went to break a little bit about some of your experiences and um, the impacts that the mission and all that has had with the airmen that we serve, uh, the people that we serve. And I guess the one last question just to round out that part was um, when in your career, you mentioned, you know, if you make decisions and you think of the person that it's going to impact, uh, you usually will go well if you're, it'll usually go well for you if you're, you're a leader. You, you started out as a lieutenant, you know, with a brand new mm -hmm. college degree and a little bit of life experience, but what impacted you to come to that type of philosophy when it comes to leading people? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think a lot of it is, is get, is, I always say this, uh, is being with the people as much as you can. I mean, you're with them at the ground level when you come in. You're with your cliques and your co your com compadres in the squadrons and you form your own cultures, but then as you start to move up the leadership ladder, you're a little more isolated from the airmen. And it's when you can push away, like General Goldfein always said, the best push-up you can do is away from your desk and go talk to them. And then that really energizes you when you see how excited they are about what they do. It really does. And when you and it's, it sounds weird, you know, the older you get, the more you feel like sort of a fatherly figure in a way in that you're watching your kids, you know, just get really excited about what they're doing. And there's times when you can feel dragged down and a little cynical in life about what you're doing and you're having any effect. There's so much bureaucracy. And, and then when you get out and watch them do what they're doing at the base level, which was your excitement when you first started doing your job, your J-O-B, as Colonel Johnson would say, that's when you realize, God, these, these, these guys and gals are having fun. Mm -hmm. Man, I miss that. And that's where you say, God, whatever keeps that smile on, your, on your, their face needs to be the goal of whatever you decide to do, you know, or, or with your big decisions on the macro level. And, and the people that are best at relaying that are their commanders. So and all I'll say about leadership here is there's two aspects of it. It's, it's sitting in a room with your with your commanders, your senior leaders and subordinate commanders and listening to them because there's no way one brain should be in a room making a decision. And it's amazing how when you get multiple very gifted leaders in a room, at the end, when you use time to make the decision, it does become almost crystal clear. It may not be always be the right one, but man, it becomes clear what to do. It's amazing how that goes. And the second aspect of leadership is being there to see the people and uh, being around them as a peer. My position, okay, I guess I'd expect some deference to my position, but I do not expect deference to me as Dan Gabrielli. I want those people, I want to earn their respect, but I also want to be among them where I'm with that airman and I can break down enough barriers where they're just looking at me like I'm just another guy who started you know, back in the day and I'm still that same guy. They'd be amazed if they knew Mentally, I still feel like a second lieutenant most of the time trying to figure things out. You know, the, the person at that position wearing that star, that eagle, is not that much more gifted or anything. They've just been through life experiences. And uh, and, and really, in essence, a lot of them are, is that 
scared little second lieutenant just trying to make do the right thing and enjoy the mission and do the fun things that they're doing with them. So that's it's my thing is is that's that's a piece of, of making sure you're visible to the airmen so they can see the face of leadership, whatever leadership level you're at. So going back to that scared little second lieutenant, let's go back a little further than that. I still remember the day that you took command of, of your first group and um, you had your high school, I think it's history teacher, come to that promotion. Is that right? Uh, no, but at my general promotion, I had my math teacher Okay, last right. year. So the impact that you're, the folks from um, your St. Paul High School, was it Johnson? Como Park. Como Park. First Sorry. graduating class, 1980. Uh, I had a way. I actually did a little internship <laughs> going, at Como. He's still alive? When I was working on my, my school principal's license, I did a little internship at, uh, at Como. Fun place, it's but awesome. So you had teachers and mentors and all that all through your whole I life, did. and you were probably one of the best students, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you had a lot of, a lot right. of things growing up in St. Paul that impacted yeah. your life, and you probably had a little bit of fun along the way. And um, so another St. Paul native, yeah, guy that uh, that grew didn't necessarily finish growing up there, but was born mm -hmm. in St. Paul is. Uh, Chad Smith. Do you know who Chad Smith is? Yeah. Who is he? And the eyeballs are looking around the room for a good answer. I've heard the... Of course you have. He looks like Will Ferrell, but he actually plays drums for the oh, Red for Hot the Chili Red Peppers. Oh, for the Red Chili Peppers. Yeah. You didn't know I him did... growing up, did you? No. Okay, so But let's... I didn't even know he was from St. Paul. I knew he was from Minnesota because I went to a Red Chili Peppers concert about two years ago. Yeah. And he talked about being from there briefly. Yeah. But he didn't say the word St. Paul. St. Paul native. So let's just say you and Chad Smith are sitting around and you're drinking a Summit beer. Okay. Because that's made in St. Paul too. Yeah. And something magical happens when you finish off the pint and you switch places. And now instead of being a general in the Minnesota Air National Guard, you're a rock and roll star. How would you live that life? Wow. Uh... Like I just said, even when I was a freshman in college, I was a lightweight. I would live it very carefully. What does careful look like? With the, see, now you're asking a guy who's 58 years old for the experience I have, how I I'd know. live as a rock star when I'm 20. I can't say I would have that same responsibility, but what I would have had going for me is I was a lightweight, so I probably would have been in bed by 9 o'clock every night, which maybe wouldn't have led to a lot of really creative production of good music. That but, might be true. Yeah. <laughs> there might be some chemicals that lead to some great music making, but... Maybe that would have failed in that respect. So uh, the question is, what would I be like as a rock and roll yes. star? I mean, you and I are same, you know, follically impaired guys. So would you grow your hair out long? <laughs> no. All right. No, would I. you got to own it. All right. You've got to own it. Be aerodynamic like we <laughs> For are. For sure. Yes. That's your question. I would, I think I'd, I think those people that do that have that life probably derive a lot of excitement and energy from being around people and hopefully have trying to have an impact on lives doing what they do without hopefully destroying their own, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. A drummer of the people. I am a huge, huge music fan. Maybe that's why I asked that question, but I love rock, blues, everything. So that's that's that I did not expect that question at all. Well that's one of those surprises. I would hope shockers. that I would be lame lifestyle like compared to other rock and rollers, but I would be, uh, I would love to be, have the talent to be able to create music. 
Wouldn't we all? Yeah. Creativity is a part of what we do, though, out here. Even though it people is. think of people, folks like us in the in the military, wearing the uniform, standing up straight and in formation all the time, is creative. Is creativity a big part of what makes a successful person? Absolutely. It doesn't matter. Like you, you hit it on the head. Here, I'm, we're talking about rock and roll. I wish I could create, be creative. Like we have, like they have some sort of sole license on creativity, but absolutely everybody uses creativity in everything they do, or we wouldn't adapt like we do. Um, think about how far the Air Force has come, you know, with weapon systems and uh, and and just uh, how about personnel, um, the dynamics and of interrelationships within wings and squadrons and flights and and uh, and everything they teach at you know Air University and PME is all based on constant research on human interaction. Um, so yeah, there's creativity involved in that. There's creativity involved in how you want to structure your leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yes, absolutely. Okay. Creativity and like maintenance, every group, better ways to do things. The innovation initiative in the Air Force, that's all based on somebody realizing that these airmen, probably at very young ages, may have more creativity than the old people. In the one, unit. one would hope. Our brains are pretty well set and rigid, aren't yes, they? Yes, like stone. <laughs> okay, so quick questions, one word answers. I'm just going to ask them quick, and you don't get to think for too long. All right. It's kind of fun. Um, favorite hockey player? Of all time? All time. Well, for my era, I've got to say Wayne Gretzky. Okay. Movie that made you cry? Gosh, when I was a kid, you ever see Brian's song? It was on TV yes. once a year. The uh, Brian Piccolo story with Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. Everybody Boy, we could use that kind of message from that movie now. That was probably the first one that ever did. Okay. If you're listening to the podcast, you need to go see <laughs> yeah, Brian's song. It'll I, make you cry. 99% of people that heard this will have to Google that movie. True. What makes you laugh? Pretty much everything. Bon Jovi or Lady Gaga? Gaga. Wow. Isn't that weird? That threw you for a loop there, didn't I? Favorite Italian food? Linguine and clams. Did you grow up eating that? No, that's a developed taste, I think. All right. But pasta in any form. What's one thing you really want to get done before your time in the military is over? Actually, you're going to say before I die. Before my time in the military is over, one thing I want to get done mm -hmm. is try to get everything I can done before I leave. Do the most I can. That's a bad question. That sounds like, like you're going to go into politics with that answer. <laughs> no, it's not like there's like oh, there's one you know more rock to climb or whatever. It's 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 uh, how about doing until you until they drag you out, never stopping, never going on cruise control. Yeah, yeah. I just want if there's one thing I want to do is is stay in as long as I can. So Jim Mattis was our. Um, Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense. Yeah, well, I just had to look up at the... Should I be interviewing you? It's terrible. Uh, he had a fun quote um, when he was asked, what, what keeps you up at night? Remember what he said? Nothing. I keep people up ah, at night. Yeah. That's so... It's a great, great, great... Putting quote. a spin on that, what wakes you up with energy each day? Knowing that each day is like a clean slate you have to, to make of it what you will. I don't know what gets you up every day. It's knowing that you can make a difference somehow. In people. Yeah. Yeah. So having been around and making a difference in people's lives and the mission uh, for as long as you have, what do you, what do you see our 
um, our Air Guard, our Air Force, our National Guard looking like in the next five years? Five years. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think everybody listening to this has to be ready to be adaptable and flexible for change in the Air Force and in the Air Guard. Um, things are going to change a lot. We all know what's going on with technology and everything's accelerated, the good and the bad. We're seeing businesses that probably were destined to fail eventually, failing quicker. We see technology that was going to evolve, evolving faster, especially as it comes to virtual meetings and, and what we're doing in society. So we're seeing a lot of things accelerate and I think the pace that, not quite related, but I think military and the Air Force in general Hey, we've been such a highly, highly technical, professional force that we're cutting edge in everything. We got a space command now. I mean, I don't even, I can't even almost see, I can't even see that far ahead as to what it will be, but I know it'll be different. It's going to be way different, especially 10 years, is that what you're talking about? Way different. It'll be fun to watch, won't it? Yeah, and you've got to be adaptable and you've got to be um, creative. I think I said in one of our one-word responses, if you're not having fun and you're not laughing, then you're in the wrong line of business. And like you said, almost everything makes you laugh. If you look at it the right way, almost everything makes me laugh. I mean, this interview makes me laugh. We've, we've had a good time. We've been talking with Brigadier General Dan Gabrielli, and it's been a, a great time. Thanks for sitting down and talking with me for a little bit today. Thanks for tolerating me. <laughs> Likewise. I could go on forever. This has been good fun. This has been called Two Bald Guys in a Room. Maybe when we're both a little older and not wearing a uniform, we could just do that. Two Bald Guys in a Room. Two Bald Guys in a Room. We'll have to have a summit or two on the way. Yeah. Or something. Next time on Beneath the Wing, I will have a guest joining me named Belle Anjanda. She is a senior airman and works in the Aeromedical Evacuation Squadron. She is also a first-generation immigrant from Cameroon, and I'm really looking forward to hearing her perspective on what it's like for her beneath the wing. So I hope you join me then, and again, thanks, General Gabrielli, for joining us today. It was an honor. Thank you.